0: Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton, and I am very excited for my guest today, Adam Davidson. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much, Nick. Great to be on the show.
0: The, the thing that I'm a little nervous about, quite honestly, is that you um, you were you know, the NPR Planet Money guy, and so you have a, a voice for radio, whereas I'm like the print guy who speaks into a microphone once a week, so don't show me up here, Okay.
1: You know what, Nick, that's going to be a challenge, but no, no, you're, you're a very good voice for radio.
0: <laughs> so um, so you were at the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, NPR. Uh, you now run a, um, a podcasting company, and you have a new book out called The Passion Economy, The New Rules for the Thriving in the 21st Century. And I'm excited to talk about all of this stuff. Um, before we jump into the book, this has been kind of a long time in the making, right?
1: It really has. Yeah. It's a, frankly a little embarrassing. Um, I feel
0: like I've had two children since you uh, first started working on this book. Yeah. So.
1: It's, it's, uh, well, so I, much of my career um, for the last 20 years has been writing about really terrible things. And I, I was, um, In Iraq, I I lived in Iraq for a year and covered the Middle East uh, during uh, the first year of the U.S. occupation and the ground war, although I was there as a business reporter. So weirdly enough, I was covering Iraq as uh, an economic and business story, which is also a rough and difficult story. Um, Then I came home and covered Hurricane Katrina, then I covered the financial crisis and spent a lot of time covering rising inequality and and other really despairing issues. Um, But throughout it all, I I developed a view and certainly a view many others have developed, which is that we're in a massive global and American economic transformation. And that transformation impacts all industries. It impacts our fundamental way of life. It's kind of on the level of going from agriculture to industry, you know, 130 years ago or whatever. Um, And that comes with a lot of dislocation and pain and tough things, but it also comes with some really good things um, as any massive transformation might. And so, you know, when you're working for news organizations and you're covering the news, you tend to really focus on the bad and that's good to focus on the bad. It makes sense to report on the bad. But over time, I wanted to tell this other story, this kind of good news story. It's just the bad news kept getting in the way, slowing down my writing.
0: So when you what, what was the premise for this idea, for this the passion economy concept? Because I think it was 2013, right, when you first kind of came up with it?
1: It was. I, I had a weekly column at the New York Times Magazine. Um, actually, my editor was Jonathan Kelly, who created the Hive. And we don't
0: talk about him on the Hive. He's dead to the Hive. He's
1: dead to the Hive. He left the Hive. He, exactly. No, he
0: left. He no longer exists. He's he was he was well. He's he's who started this podcast. So we actually do have to give him a shout out.
1: Yeah, um, uh, reluctantly, so but yes, no, reluctantly. I, yes, he's one of my <laughs> very closest friends. But somehow, the way our friendship so is to just make fun of each other all the time. So, um, but. He and I, and certainly lots of the columns were about bad things, but we kept kind of finding these stories about small business people and just regular folks who had figured something new out, had figured out a way to thrive in an economy that was so challenging and so difficult. And it took a while to get our heads together and figure out that... The bad is part of the good and the good is part of the bad, that that they're all part of one thing. And that the, the transformation of our economy comes from digital technology, automation, the Internet, and it also comes from global trade and outsourcing and all of those forces that have sort of ripped apart a fairly stable 20th century economy, an economy built around mass production, large companies doing the same thing over and over again, um, it, is just, it has ripped apart much of the logic of that economy. And that is really painful and has caused a lot of disruption in many, many people's lives. But it also creates this new opportunity to for people to create a product or service to do something and reach a much reach a passionate audience, even if it's a smaller audience, spread all over the world using those same tools, using trade and technology to reach those people. And that kind of engagement, that passionate, intimate engagement is just more valuable in every sense of the word than, you know, getting a can of Coke in everyone's hands or getting ivory soap to be in every single shop in the world. Podcasting to me is a great example where, you know, broadcast radio designed to reach everyone everywhere has to have a certain sameness, a certain, um, you know, it, it can't be too specific to, for any group. But podcasting can be because people are choosing it people are able to, you're able to create your own, curate your own playlist of podcasts. It's a different experience than just turning on the radio and it's either top 40 pop or top 40 R&B or top 40 country or public radio. Um, podcasting is, is a perfect example of what I'm talking about.
0: So I I, I was in 2008, I sold a book, Um, which no one should ever read. But um, the book was called I Live in the Future and Here's How It Works. I was working in the research and development labs in the New York Times, and I had this kind of vision of what the future might look like. And so I went around kind of trying to report that out, and I went to like MIT and, and all these different labs all over the country. And the second chapter of the book was about the porn industry. And Because I'd looked back and I saw, oh, well, the porn industry was at the forefront of most new technologies, and they're probably at the forefront of tech and media and the internet, and and what do they see? And so I flew out to Northern California and went to all these different porn production places, which was quite fascinating because it was nothing like what I thought it would be. But the... The thing I was told was two things, and they were so on the nose, it was kind of ridiculous. The first thing, which was kind of comical, was that the future of porn was going to be virtual reality, and I said, why? And they said, because it's hands-free, so you can do whatever you want with both your hands, which is fascinating. Uh, I don't know if we are there yet, but it definitely exists already. But the second thing, which we are there yet, which they were far ahead of their time with, was that you would the, the idea of, of one for everybody would vanish, and that there would be... A niche in a way that you couldn't even comprehend. So like, if you like, you know, short women who wear uh, striped tights and and have blue hair and glasses, there would be a, uh, like, there would be porn that existed for that and you could pay for it if you liked it and and so on. And that has been what's happened with media, right? We've seen that, like you just said, with podcasting, we've seen it um, with, with a variety of different things. But the question that I have after that kind of long little soliloquy here, is isn't this the way everything begins where there's kind of, you have a few people that start off with this passion kind of like career and then the corporations figure out how to usurp it and take it over?
1: So my argument is we are in a new age, like not just a new, like, oh, it's this quarter is different from last quarter, but like fundamental new age in human history. Um, And if you look at it through an economic lens, there's just a totally different way of... Sort of matching buyers and sellers, products and services, passion and and a passionate consumer, and and so I don't think this is just how it always works. Um, so if if you think about um, the most of the world of business before, say, I don't know, the Civil War, before the what they call the Second Industrial Revolution, when you know mass production really kicks in. Um, the vast majority of things you buy or services you pay for is local, and, you know, there's a tiny amount of extremely expensive luxury goods that would be transported across long distance. But for the most part, everything—all your clothes, your furniture, your bed, your soap, your food—either is either you made it at home or— You bought it from a neighbor, and you knew the names of the great-grandparents of the people you bought stuff from. And there was this real intimacy, but it was also um, a very... There's a huge lack of diversity in the products you would buy. So if you're in one part of France, there's just one kind of cheese and bread that they consume in that part of France. And if some local baker has some new idea for a new kind of bread they're probably not going to be able to find enough consumers within walking distance. So they're not even going to try to make that new kind of bread. And then you do have the industrialization, you have mass production, and you have, for the first time in human history, everyday cheap products being made at in one place and then distributed h- across huge distances to people who will never visit the place it was made, meet the people who make it. But the nature of that mass production is that you you want things that are easy to produce in bulk and, and you ship them in long distances and you really focus on sameness. And this was a new thing in human history. You know, ivory soap, one of the first... Um, truly mass-produced consumer goods, um, and and often considered the, the first branded product, really successfully branded product, they wanted you to know that if you buy a bar of ivory soap in Duluth and a bar of ivory soap in Dubai, it's going to be the same bar. And that kind of sameness predictability no, nobody's passionate about ivory soap. Ivory soap's a pretty crappy soap. It dries out your skin. It's not very good, but it is safe. <laughs> it is the same. It's relatively cheap, and you can trust yep. it, which was a big change from and and and. But now, and and for most of the twentieth century, that was the core. It, if um, if you look at the suite of everyday products available. In 1940, it wasn't that different from the suite of everyday products available when I was a kid in 1980, say. Um, but now, I mean, we're all familiar with the fact that every few weeks there's you go to Whole Foods or whatever, there's new kinds of soap, there's new kinds of chocolate bars, and as well as in products and services. There's new innovations in how to be an accountant, how to be a graphic designer, how to do a million different jobs. You and I are both making money in a way that no journalists made before. Um, and... This idea that you can match to a small audience but a widely distributed audience of people who are really passionate for that specific thing, even if they're not all in the same village, even if they're not all shopping at the same store, that is a fundamental change. It makes um, human beings permanently weirder. And I think the porn example is not a terrible example. I, I reported on porn in L.A., 20 years ago, for a little minute for the LA Weekly, and learned as you did, I assume, that porn, the porn industry is truly the least sexy and exciting place in oh, the world. Oh, totally yeah.
0: bizarre. I'm so, run by like Hasidic Jews, and yeah, it's yes. like.
1: But, um, but, but that's a perfect example where we all have our impulses are needs, whether they're for porn or for soap or for a way of engaging with an accountant. I have a whole chapter. Some people tell me it's the most exciting chapter in the book about an accountant who came up with a new way to be an accountant. Um, and and we can now match providers and buyers of products and services in a way no one could have in human history. Even 30 years ago, it was impossible
0: so in the chapter in your book on the rules for the passion economy, you kind of set out these different rules. And I'd love to kind of walk through them a little bit and just and have you kind of explain them. Um, you know, the, the first is pursue int- intimacy at scale. Um, and uh, the second, I want to actually jump to the second because I found that to be fascinating too, is, is only create value that can't be easily copied. So you can talk about the first one, but the, the question I have about the second one is, isn't going when you kind of look at this this whole trajectory we're on with technology isn't the whole point that everything can be copied?
1: So I would argue there are things that can't be copied or and and that doesn't mean a static product or service probably any specific thing you make or do can be copied but a deep engagement with a specific audience where you are staying on top of their interests and needs, and un- and understanding, and forecasting, and predicting, and responding to that audience's needs, um, can't be copied. That level of engagement, because, I, you know, my argument is not that we're done with scale. There's going to be massive, huge corporations making and selling the same thing over and over again to larger and larger audiences. And in the world of digital, with Facebook and Google, et cetera, it's at levels that, you know, the founders of General Motors and DuPont could not have ever dreamed of. You know, Facebook eventually will reach every single human being alive. But the very nature of bigness leaves a space for those who focus on smallness. And smallness can mean reaching a small population. You know, It can also mean reaching several million people who have a specific interest, an interest that you can understand. So for example, this accountant I talked about, Jason Blummer, his focus is on creative professionals, graphic designers and web designers, he works with me, a podcast creator, who are pretty good at their creative endeavor but get a little lost in figuring out the, their business model. Jason and his partner, Julie Ship have a very specific way of working with people. It's not for everybody. But if it's for you, there's not going to be a lot of other people who you're going to go to. He's just the guy and you're going to be willing to pay money to him. And part of the service he's selling you is he's going to constantly stay on top of trends and trajectories in the in your industry so he knows who you are there's an ad agency that i write about ray ward in um, north carolina that is fully focused on being the the ad agency for the furniture market they're just going to know everything there is about the furniture industry and if you're a furniture company they're just going to offer you a level of service that the massive global ad agencies are never going to be able to you, Nick, are obsessed with media. You you have a particular voice and sensibility. And that's not going to be copyable. Now, of course, there's tons, I mean, there's tons of media podcasts. There's tons of media um, prognosticators. But the specific way you do it is not copyable. And now, I don't think your goal, or if it is, you're going to be horribly disappointed. You're not like I'm gonna be the Google of media prognostication. I'm gonna be the only one doing it, and I'm gonna just dominate. Just really them.
0: aiming for the Amazon of uh, media prognostication. Yes, uh, Amazon
1: but... is an even better one. Yes, I would say the yeah. Dutch East India Company of. Um, so, but but the point is. There's a really comfortable place, a place where lots and lots and lots of people are making really good livings. They're not becoming billionaires, but they might be becoming billionaires, and they're certainly making healthy, solid six-figure salaries and building equity in a business where they're focusing of an, on an audience that's 10,000 people, 100 people. 100,000 people, a million people. It's big enough that you can really build a business around it, a real long-term business, but it's small enough that big companies just don't can't possibly spend the time and effort focusing on them.
0: So when you so I've I've a million questions uh, to follow up on this, but is one of the things you're saying and I look, I completely agree with everything you're saying. I'm just kind of pushing back in certain areas because this is where my mind goes, but but it feels like I remember there was a story when and I'm not I am not putting you in the same bucket as these people in any way shape or form I'm just using this as an anecdote to kind of ask this question but there was a story a while back I think it was in the Atlantic about about the the guys that started like summit series and they interviewed them and spent time with them and one of the guys who started summit series was like you know like the economy's changing and and um, and you could do it. we live in a world now where you can do anything you dream of and the the one line he said that got quite ridiculed was that he said, you know, if you if you want to change your career, like host a dinner party once a week and invite 10 random people. And and I, my response to that was like, well, you know, uh, 30% of people in America are, are like below the poverty line. Like they can't afford to do that. What are they going to do? Like hand out food stamps for McDonald's to host a dinner party? Like there, you know, there's there was a story this last year, um, which, was, which was just shocking that said that if... Uh, a certain – a pretty large percentage of low-income people were given an extra $200 bill one random month. They could lose their entire livelihood because they just don't have the money to do that. And and my question is, is in this world of this passion economy where you kind of do talk about these things, isn't it an economy that exists for people of more affluence that can afford to do these things rather than people who don't?
1: I do think that it is much easier for people – I think it rewards. Well, it certainly re- rewards some degree of passion, curiosity, ambition, a bit of comfort with risk, and and also a bit of ability to manage risk. So, um, people who either have some money or have some family support and know that if things really fall apart, uh, they they have people they can rely on. Although I would say that the people in my book, most of them, and the people I'm thinking of are these are not. This is certainly not the 1% or the 0.001%. I'd say many, many, many of the people in my book started their journey making $30,000, dollars $50,000 a year and eventually got to the point where they're making $150,000, dollars $300,000 a year. That's, that's what a, a lot of people's passion economy story is. And I think that's a wonderful story. That's a great story. And for me personally... I find that a more compelling story than I was Mark Zuckerberg, I was at Harvard, and now I'm worth $100 billion. Like, to me, that's interesting, obviously, but it's not applicable. It's not something a lot of people can learn from and apply. So I I think it's wrong to say this is only for the very elite, And but it is definitely, you know, I, I have people in my own family, I've certainly met many people who are so marginally, they have so little money that they're, and and so little resources in every sense of the word that they're not able to spend the time to think up what is their passion. They're just worried about paying rent and eating food. and, and, And so I'm definitely not arguing. This is an answer for everyone. Don't worry, everybody. Problem solved. Everything is great now. I'm definitely not arguing that. And it is possible... I mean, I do think that more people than now... Many more people than now can embrace the ideas in my book and and can do much better than they are doing now. Um, But I don't think this is the only solution. I happen to be sort of center-left politically. I do think that this economy is going to leave behind a lot of people and that it is appropriate to think about how the government's going to support people who are left behind. I think the 20th century was a uniquely good time for... um, broad based economic growth for many, many different types of people. And I, I it's hard to see that happening in the 21st century without some kind of government policy that promotes that. Um but uh so 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 those are political issues that to me are a little bit separate from what this book is about, but I certainly have written a lot about, think a lot about. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: Hi, it's Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15 That's VanityFair.com promo code POD15 for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear Do you think that you know when you look back at the industrial revolution um, even the second industrial revolution you know it's a period of time that took place over 100 120 years quite you know for the whole thing to take effect it was massive disruption in society there were there was you know the biggest rising crime in the history of you know of the world probably and that took place over over you know over 100 years the the economic changes that we're about to go through or have already started going through, Do they? does it, is it happen much quicker because of the technology? A, that's the first part of the question. And The second part is, does there need to be some sort of cataclysmic moment, like a, a big recession or something, that will drive the reset of this? Or is it something that is just kind of going to happen over a period of time?
1: Um, I, I do think... I think the timing's pretty similar, actually. I mean, if you... Um, you know, I, I think of like the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties is when, you know, before that the there's a lot of the Industrial Revolution technology, you know, steam engines and and uh, mass production of clothing and stuff. But most people in America, most people in the world are still living essentially a medieval life. They're 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 you know, they're living a life where Nothing goes faster than a horse or a mule, and and um, nothing. there's, you know, electricity cars are not really there. The telegram's a pretty big deal, and rail is beginning to become more and more prevalent. But 1880s, you really start kicking in. Like, massive corporations start being born. Um, the, the, you know, the, the U.S. economy in 1920 is the first census where more people live in cities than... Live in rural areas, um, but if if you look at the previous forty years, you're seeing a dramatic increase. You know, people leaving farms, going to the cities, um, drawn by factories. You know, it's funny. We now think of factories as something that exists not in big cities, but but back then they existed in big cities. And really, by 1915, you know, by World War One, you're you're seeing um, DuPont and then General Motors. You're seeing the birth of the modern corporation. You're seeing the early stages of unionization and and some of the political responses. Um, and I think you know, 1880 to 1920 is not that different from 1980 to 2020 in this context. It's um, it's a uh, it's a you know I, I would say 1980 is when you really start seeing the impact of automation, of global trade of a government that isn't really able to keep up with these changes. And, you know, it's probably the financial crisis in nineteen in, in 2007, 8, 9, that really reveals, you know, strips bare the rising inequality, the lack of a social safety net. And here we are in in 2020, I think, beginning to see, like, okay, there's something that's fundamentally different. We got to figure this thing out. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't, you know... it it took another 20 or 30 years to really figure out, you know, things like social security, things like, you know, the five day work week and the eight hour work day and, um, things like pensions and 401ks and health insurance. There's, uh, there's all these innovations that came that made industrial, softened industrializations, harsh impact and made it better for a broader public. And it, it, seems that these kinds of institutional responses require enough clarity about the change that people can gather together and and be clear about what they're demanding. You know, in the early days of the industrial revolution, one of the things people were demanding is everyone should go back to farms and girls should not wear pants. You know, it was uh, there was confusion about what the stakes were. And um and and I think we're you know, I mean, at least that's my theory that, you know, my book and many others, I don't want to say I'm the only one, are beginning to point to, hey, guys, something really new is going on. And the rules of the 20th century don't work anymore. And talking only, you know, the le- the progressive left talking about labor unions and minimum wage, those may be good things, but they're not the solution. The right wing saying, don't worry, the market will take care of it. That's clearly not also a solution. But we haven't quite articulated what the solutions are yet.
0: No, it's it's really fascinating. I think that what's so interesting is, you know, looking at your book and, um, and other books kind of that are in the same periphery of this topic. Like Tim Wu is working on a new book about uh, the end of bigness, you know, like how some of these corporations become – so big and so unmanageable and and sometimes so bad because they feel that every single year they have to increase their corporate profits by 20% and 20% and 20% and a, a how long is that sustainable for? And, and you know, Yancey Strickler has a, a book out. We, we had him on the podcast a few weeks ago talking about, you know, how there were certain moments in the past hundred years that really kind of broke the idea of what it was like to run a business. And and he explains it himself as the CEO of a, uh, of, a of a company, of Kickstarter, like how, how it's all designed to kind of feel like it's war and you've constantly got to grow and so on. And his solution is this thing called Bentoism that, you know, is, it has some similar lessons that you're talking about, but it does seem like everyone is looking, not everyone, but there are, there are people in the middle who are trying to say, like, okay, we, we see this is breaking. It's about to break. And, like, what are the solutions to the middle of it? So so one question I, I have is you you talk in the book about um, the Amish um, and um, how they learned to find their true value of technology. Can you tell that story a little and, and, and how you came about, uh, about of it?
1: Yeah, and I, I do love the Amish story because it's it's almost like one of those like you you feel like you made it up because it's such a perfect <laughs> um, case study of what you're trying to say and um and and just to place it in context and talk about I don't believe in the end of bigness I think big companies are getting us you know they're not all of them but we're nowhere near the end of the period you know, of big you, companies you, getting you, bigger you
0: believe that there's some there's two. Two forks, right? Those yeah, I, mean, I and then the smallness, right? Yeah, I
1: mean, there's like the dinosaurs are still, you know, we we <laughs> the asteroid hasn't hit. The dinosaurs are doing great, but I'm saying, hey, these these little mammals have something going on that's kind of interesting. And for a while, they're just separate. You know, the mammals are just running around. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good metaphor, but it popped into Cat my head. Tat holes. I, yeah. So, um, but a point I wanted to make is that there's a way of competing in this economy that is not um it's not going head to head with the big companies and saying i'm going to be better than the big companies i'm going to or i'm going to be faster than the big companies or i'm going to it's to say i'm just not in that game i'm not going to sell at walmart i'm not going to chase you know whatever the latest Facebook ad strategy is. I'm just going to do something different. And what I'm going to do is deeply engage an audience and understand them profoundly and serve them, super serve them. And to the extent technology can help me, great, but I'm not going to be driven by technology. And so when you think about people not driven by technology, you think of the Amish. Now, the Amish are a bit more complex than we think. They don't just reject technology. What they do is when a new technology comes along, whether it's the car or the computer or the cell phone, they're very decentralized. And each church district sort of weighs how this will impact not just their direct lives. They do think, like, will this help our businesses? Because they do want to make enough money that they can, you know, have growing families. But how will this affect our home life? Because the Amish value having a strong home life. How will this affect our faith? Will we stay in the same churches, and they make decisions. I remember an Amish woman telling me and my wife, um, you think we're simple, but you're simple. You just take whatever comes. You just run after the latest technology. We actually stop and think about it. You're the simple ones. And I, frankly, guilty as charged. I think that's right.
0: No, I totally agree with that.
1: Yeah. And so um, I focus on the Wengert family. Wayne Wengert, an amazing guy, and his uh, 12 children, 13 children, I can't remember, Um, who live in Dalton, Ohio, and they make farm equipment for people who farm by horses and mules, mostly Amish, but not only Amish. And they believe there's about 25,000 potential customers in the U.S. and Canada, and they don't reach all of those 25,000. But, um... But they reach enough of them that they have a very vibrant business. They sell a lot of farm equipment. They employ about 50 people. Um, They make many, many, many millions of dollars a year. They're supporting those 50 people with very generous, by Amish standards, salaries. And they're building a proper business. And because they're Amish, those 12 kids are each having as many kids as they can have. And they're on track to keep all of the Wengerts employed, even if there's 100 Wengerts or 200 Wengerts in another generation. And what I like is the, so first of all, you might think, certainly I thought as a city kid, all right, animal-powered plows, animal-powered tillers, those have existed for millennia. There can't be, those must be just figured out and solved. And what amazes me is Pioneer comes out with new ones every year, new innovations, new ideas no one has ever thought of. And They do that by really understanding what their customer needs and also by engaging technology in a very solutions-oriented way. So to give you an example, Amish people only go to an eighth-grade education. They don't go to college. They certainly don't get advanced degrees. I don't think there's any Amish people who know a lot about metallurgy. But— These folks know it's important, so they've really engaged with metals companies, and they stay on top of advances, and there's amazing advances, in steels. And so they've been able to buy steel that was invented for the aviation and automotive industries that's just really strong and really light, and that allows them to make plows that are far easier for horses to pull, but are able to withstand far more force. And it transforms their ability to plow, particularly in rocky soil and cold soil. And the Amish are increasingly leaving Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, and going farther north where land prices are cheap. So they're finding themselves in really cold, rocky ground, and they now have this these much better plows. Um, that's just one example. Similarly, the Amish, so the Wengert family... Their company owns three or four flip phones. They don't believe in smartphones, um, but most people are not walking. Most of them are not walking around with phones of any kind, and their customers. You know, the typical Amish farmer might have a phone shed on their property, not in their home, and might check their messages every morning or every other morning. So it's not like they're like you and me on Twitter every five seconds. But good for them. Very good for them. <laughs> and and I will tell you from experience, having written a chapter of a book about the Amish. They don't get back to you right away. Sometimes it's a week. Sometimes it's a few weeks. But they're using enough of that communication technology that they're able to stay in real contact with what their customers need. And they're able to invent new products that meet those needs. So I tell the story of these pumpkin farming Amish in Michigan who had very specific needs and the, the Wengert family was able to use advanced metals, use telephone lines, use the internet, and then crucially, and this is the kind of thing that most of us don't think about, but use major advances in shipping and logistics. It turns out it's a huge problem to figure out how to ship really bulky things from a rural factory in Ohio to rural customers all over the country. But big companies like XPO Logistics have figured this out using computer technology. So it made me realize that this Amish business, Pioneer Equipment, is Maybe the family itself is not using most modern technology, but it's fully embedded in the 21st century. And that made me realize all of us can do that. We don't have to know how to program computers. We don't have to have, like, our, the latest app. But we're surrounded by that technology. And when we know what our business is, we can use the technology appropriately to find those customers spread thinly around the world and, and make a business.
0: Did you when you were spending time with the Amish did you think like huh they've got it figured out and we don't or were you like I don't think I could do this
1: Both things I truly have both thoughts I think yeah, yeah. um I remember sitting with an Amish friend in his backyard he's with his children and grandchildren playing volleyball running around the running around all of his closest friends and relatives lived within walking distance on their own farms And, um, and I just said to my wife, like, they got the better deal. Like, (laughs) this is a really nice life. But no, we couldn't possibly go back to that. I couldn't, I mean, first of all, I'm not, I don't have the kind of religious faith that is at the center of the Amish, but yeah, I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm judging myself for using Twitter and checking my email every four seconds, but I'm not going to stop doing that. You're listening to Inside the Hive. With Nick Bilton.
0: So, your passion in the passion economy is podcasting, is that correct?
1: Yeah. And commu- I would say, you know, to be annoying about it, I would say my passion is communicating to a broad lay audience about business and economics and doing it in print and audio and other ways. And podcasting is a technology that I think is really. In its early infant stages and is really fun to be, you know, if I can be obnoxious and pretentious and say be part of one of many pioneers in. So, so it, I would put it in that Amish way where it's not that my passion is the technology, my passion is something else, but the technology is a great way to, to explore that passion.
0: So what, the thought that I've had, I mean, I've been in media now for 15 or so years and um, was at the times when Twitter started and helped get people on the platform and don't know if I should have in hindsight, um, I, you know, I've covered and lived and used all these different things. And I'm curious what you think the future of these technologies how they affect media and media consumption and what the future looks like. Just, you know, I don't know anyone who reads um, a print paper anymore or who personally, like people I spend time with, or who watches Fox News or MSNBC. What is the future of that?
1: So, I mean, I, I think the future is, first of all, it's multifold. I don't think it's like we're going from this one model to another model. I think we're going to a permanent condition of having lots and lots of models and those models having periods of growth and then periods of collapse and then a new model coming, etc. And, um, you know, I think the the two trends that I see in so many other parts of the economy strike me as likely to continue uh, to be especially true in media, that you're going to have bigness, you're going to have, um, you know, a handful of major players in different categories, whether that's Netflix and the New York Times and, you know, we'll see about Apple and um, in, in entertainment, but certainly Apple and devices, Disney, et cetera. And then you're going to see an awful lot of smaller, nimble players. I think the real shakeout that we're seeing, obviously, I mean, I'm just saying things that you already know and a million people have talked about is, you know, the kind of middle of the road, the, the, the regional paper, the regional TV network. TV station company um, you know that the, we're, we're we're gonna see the continued collapse of that I also think um, that right this minute monetization is broken making money through media really is not working accurately.
0: You're talking about advertising or just everything? well I'm
1: talking about the fact that you bring up advertising like advertising almost never supports, great quality work. It's just, um, if you think of any of the things you love most that in, in media, it's very unlikely that they're only or primarily supported by ads. That's a good um, point. You know, books, magazines, TV shows, etc. that there's some way in which people who love it pay money for it. And whether that's buying books or subscribing to The New Yorker or Vanity Fair or subscribing to Netflix or HBO, um, until users are able to, I mean, frankly, express their passion through paying for it, um, it, it's not... You're not going to get the quality work that is good enough that it demands users pay for it, if that makes sense. You know, advertising wants cheap reprodu- reproduction it wants um a lot a lot of inventory that doesn't cost that much and so um it wants you know in the case of podcasting it wants talk shows that you know can be long and 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 lots and lots of people listen to them and they're relatively cheap to produce and would those are fine and i'm sure my company will produce some of those but that's not the only thing we want to produce now i think the way subscription and user fees work right now is not great. It's 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 not monetizing things right. As, as someone pointed out to me, and these are outdated statistics, so the numbers are even bigger now, but something like 50 million Americans listen to at least an hour a day of podcasts. And that is, in this economy, that's a huge resource. 50 million people times an hour. That is a lot of attention, and those are people who are figuring out how a podcast works, actively downloading podcasts. It's it's a level of engagement that's much higher than you happen to be in a store and the radio's on, or you're at home and you don't know what you're going to do, so you turn on the TV and watch whatever's on. And all of podcasting, you can read different statistics, but all advertising in total for the entire industry is like $500 million, something like that. I can tell you, if you went up to Bob Iger or some other media executive and said, hey, I can give you 50 million Americans for an hour a day, they would pay a lot more than $500 million. <laughs> That's an extremely valuable resource. Mm. But we're, we we haven't quite cracked it. Part of it is a technological problem. Part of it is a data problem. We don't know enough about podcast consumers. Um, so you know, my view is we're still in the early stages of figuring out the business institutions. Now, that's not to say we're definitely going to figure it out and the future is only bright. Um, You know, now running a company, we really want to support, for example, investigative journalism. But right now, today, the only way to support investigative journalism is to hope that eventually there's a business model that supports it. Because right now, it's just way more expensive and and way riskier and it, it's it's really tough.
0: But wasn't the business? I mean, I always remember Clay Shirky's um, uh, blog post about a decade ago now, talking about the future of newspapers and and there was that great line that that you know that the classifieds were really kind of the the thing that supported the investigative journalism and when the classifieds were taken over by Craigslist, um, you know, he said this, I forget who the kid's name was, but like little Johnny who wanted to sell his bike, didn't have to like pay for this ad in the newspaper. He could go and do it on Craigslist. And, and he didn't really care if little, little Johnny didn't really care if he was like funding some investigative journalism piece. He just wants to sell his bike. And, and the, I guess the question I have is, do you, is there, one of the things, one of the trends we're starting to see, just a little bit, and it's almost like an experimental trend, is is these platforms where people will pay a small amount of money for in, incredibly generalized contests. Going back to the the porn industry again, like you know this niche product and so on. Is it that we? That rather than a, a, a New York Times-like institution or, or maybe the Times is still around but something else like the Boston Globe or whatever it is, rather than that exists for a million people, that there are uh, a, a hundred of those that exist for, for 10, 20, 30,000 people?
1: So first of all, I'll say Clay Shirky has been incredibly – Valuable in the way I think about everything. I really love Clay Shirky and re- highly recommend his books. Although I interviewed Little Johnny and he does care about investigative journalism, <laughs> it, 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 that. Um, so I look at it slightly differently. Here, here's how I would look at it. Yes, the, the 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 newspaper of the 20th century, just like the you know main broadcast network of the 20th century, was a blunt tool. We didn't. There wasn't a lot of, we didn't, we couldn't, it was hard to value each second of television watching or each article. And then when we were able to rip it apart and value each section differently, we learned that in that model, classifieds had huge value and sending a reporter for eight months to do an incredibly dangerous and expensive investigative report in Baghdad had much, it was a money losing proposition under that model. That is true. Now, what I but what I would say is that doesn't mean so therefore we can never do that reporting. If if you think of the if you get to the core of what investigative reporting does. If if you think of how an investigative report, let's use John Rue's amazing work on Theranos. It spawns a book, it spawns A copycat podcast. It spawns um, two different TV shows. Um, It spawns any number of documentaries. It spawned many, many millions of dollars of economic activity. It also impacted lots of um, ways of thinking, like, you know, I think we're going to see the kind of Elizabeth Holmes villain in other movies, et cetera. And the existing media structure is very bad at capturing that long tail value. You know, John Carrew was an employee of the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal certainly benefited from being the platform that he used to promote this story, but they didn't participate in all of that economic activity. And what I'm the one of the bets we're making at my new company that I co founded with Laura Mayer at Three Uncanny Four is that we can we can create the content, we can support the investigative work, and we can be part of that longer tale of, of, you know, unfortunately the word in the industry is exploitation, but we can help with the book and the movie and the documentary and the TV show. Um, not in every case, it doesn't mean every story will always become a movie, but if just a few of them do, that starts changing the economics. And to me, that's look that's not saying oh, the 20th century economy worked this way, it's not working anymore, therefore we're screwed. It's saying the 20th century economy worked one way, this economy works a different way, let's think about how this economy works and let's build new things that work in this economy. And they will work for some period of time. I don't know if they'll work for two years or 20 years or 100 years. But then they'll have to – then you'll have to figure out a new way of working. And I don't – I don't. I can't imagine Clay would disagree with what I'm saying right now. But, yes, I do think – I think fun – and also, you know, I mean, you and I both worked at newspapers. There was a Ugh. lot of fat. It's not like uh-huh. – there's a no, lot there's of – still
0: a lot of fat.
1: There's a lot of people not – you know we no lo- it
0: perplexes me still I still to this day that you know you've got um, X amount of people whose job it is is to write one column a week or something like that and or you know or like someone who's been successful who will get to work on one story a year or so you know it's it's um, and then you have lots uh, and
1: lots of people whose job is to you know essentially, support the process of reporting without report. So when I look at the 20th century newspaper world and I, you know, I started, I wrote for the Chicago Tribune in the early nineties, you know, and I love newspapers and I believe in local papers. I don't want to do that, but I don't want to like crap all over them, but did every single regional paper need a Jerusalem correspondent? You know, did, did every single one need its own movie critic? Did, you know, did every city no, with three papers choir, need three different need to just do copycat reporting at city hall all the time? I mean, it's not like, you know, there was unbelievable, heroic, amazing reporting done. Obviously, and I wish we had a much more robust and lively local and regional newspaper world. It would be make America a better country and safer and better. I I, I mourn the loss, but. Sometimes I feel like there's like a, oh, that was great and this is terrible. And I think that was there's a lot that was good about that system. There's a lot that wasn't good. Right now we're in a tough moment, but there there will be solutions. It's gonna take time. I'm not saying it'll solve every problem or we're on the verge of a golden age of investigative reporting or whatever. We certainly are in a golden age of television, which nobody was predicting a few years ago. And and I think some of those same forces where people HBO doesn't want to spend $50 million an episode on Game of Thrones. They'd rather spend, you know, $50,000 on an episode, but they spend $50 million because people will pay for it. And I I do think there's a way to think about journalism that plugs into that system in some way. Um, I don't know that it'll work. I might fail at it, but it's something we're really trying to build.
0: All right, so last couple of questions. the first one is, as we look at the 2020 cycle right now, there's one of the things that has been kind of forefront from the Democratic side is that from the Warrens and the Bernies and so on, is that the that the economy and capitalism and the way that we use it and it functions doesn't necessarily work. And there's a lot of people talking about if it does, and a lot of people offering solutions to it, and, and you know, my personal belief is that there should be a, a floor and a ceiling to how much someone should make before there's, they're taxed or not taxed or something like that. You know, I, um, I think that if you make over a billion dollars, like, you should be taxed 90%. If you make under $10,000, you shouldn't be taxed or whatever it is. Um, but they, do you think that we are going to see—and this is more your business hat than your book— um, Do you think that we're going to see any kind of fundamental change in the way that capitalism, as we know it, uh, works in this country?
1: I think we are at a massive, crucial turning point. Um, And I don't know if that means this year, although I do, you know, I think a Trump presidency would... Re-election, which unfortunately I think is obviously a very real and perhaps even likely scenario, is yeah. a major, major step in the wrong direction. Um, I myself am not on the progressive left. I'm not, um, but I would obviously wholeheartedly support any Democrat over Trump. And I certainly think Elizabeth Warren has some great policy ideas. Um, the, I think that. Um, I think the true radicals are on the right, not on the left. And I don't think they're—I think, you know, what is clear now, and, and I don't see this as a political statement, it just feels like an observation of fact, is that the the previous idea that, you know, the the sort of classic 20th century battle or late 20th century battle in economic theory was, oh, the Democrats are broadly Keynesian, meaning— they're capitalists, but they believe the government should intervene at various points to to keep the overall economy healthy. And the Republicans are broadly Chicago school free market. I think what we see is that the Democrats are pretty much in the same general universe that they were in, which was a sensible, reasonable universe. And the Republicans were actually lying. (laughs) They were not, or like six of them were being (laughs) honest, but most of them were not. And that when you look at the Trump model or many other politicians model, it's a lot more like oligarchic capitalism, which is not, you know, in its pure form, free market capitalism is not, it's a, you know, you think of Joseph Schumpeter and creative destruction. It believed that companies should fail. It believed that people who happen to have money should not just keep having more money, that entrepreneurship and rapid change, these are the things that make an economy healthy. And you can agree with that or disagree with that, but that had a certain integrity. I think what you see in, certainly in the Trump administration, and this is something certainly that has been a part of Republican policy for a long time, but is now just open and blatant and naked, is... People with wealth and power are accumulating more wealth and power. They're beginning to make money more from accessing government and forcing government to impose, you know, reduce environmental regulations and impose rules that benefit them. And that is disastrous. It's not just unfair or it pisses us off that some people are really rich. It's disastrous for capitalism. It means that capitalism can't work without failure and, and and failure of big businesses. And so to me, a true free market party would be supporting far better access to education. it would be supporting a far more um, available health insurance program that isn't tied to any one company. Those would be the things that would encourage entrepreneurship that would support innovation. And creative destruction. And it certainly would not be particularly interested in the interests of oil and gas and other massive corporations. So, um, I honestly don't, even though I don't agree with Bernie Sanders on a lot of things, and frankly, I find a lot of his policy proposals so vague and I don't really know what they are. Um, but I'm not worried about the left. I don't think they're radical. I think they're within the same conversation we've been having. I think the what is happening in the Republican Party is the radical, destructive transformation of our economy to a far less democratic, entrepreneurial, open economy. And that, to me, that that's when you start imagining the collapse of the United States.
0: Fascinating. All right, last question for you. Um, let's pretend, you know... Uh, uh, 300 million Americans buy your book, and uh, congratulations, you sold a lot of copies. And we start to see kind of the passion economy uh, take hold let's like fast forward five years. What is like a, what is the, what does your day look like in a world where, um, where it has changed and that these kind of tadpoles are able to do the things that they're passionate about?
1: Well, first of all, if 300 million Americans buy my book, then obviously I would join the plutocratic class and (laughs) reject everything I just said and fully support the (laughs) Republican party's destruction of entrepreneurship. Um, so, um, I, I, I think that I do think we are at uh, on a like I said before I really do think we are at a historic turning point we've been at historic turning points before um, but but we can see something radically new and and the the happiest version of this for me is I mean this feels like a cliche and I might regret ever saying this but it's a bit like going to Whole Foods it's there's a much wider array of products and services that are made by a much wider array of people. I'm not just talking about consumption goods. I'm also talking about your accountant, your hairdresser, your um, where you buy your clothes, etc. That technology allows us to match. That's a big problem still. You know, I might. It, it's pretty hard to find all the people I want and all the things I, I want most. And. Um, but that each of our days are are spent, you know, we, we don't just all buy toothpaste from the, the same four brands that are owned by the same two companies. And we don't all just buy ice cream from the same three brands that are owned by the same two companies. But each of us is having a very different experience. Um, I grew up in Greenwich Village in, a, in New York and I remember as a kid, my dad said, what's great about New York is everyone has their own New York. New York is so weird and changing that each person um, just, they have their own shops, their own experience, their own walk. And And I do think that is a real possibility. For richer people today, it is, we're already there for people who engage in that. But I do think that's a possibility for far more people i don't know if i want to say for everyone and that also means more and more people are working either for their own company or for another company that really reflects their values it reflects their particular passionate interest Um, and that to me is not only kind of a happier place and a cooler place it's also a richer place. I think that economy is a more successful, robust, and most importantly, more secure and stable economy. It's, as we learned in the financial crisis, it's not good when your economy rests on the shoulders of of a very small number of massive corporations that could all make the same stupid decision. And so, that to me is the Pollyanna version that feels like not insane to believe in. I think we need a lot of, to make it fully broadly shared, I think there's a lot we need. Um, we need technological solutions so that each of us can kind of find all that stuff in the world that we want um, without getting confused by all the noise of all the stuff we don't want. I also think it means more education, more, you know, that more access to capital that's more democratic and more broadly shared. Um and and, and some cultural changes too so that people feel more comfortable taking risks in that way Um, but um, but I think it's very doable I don't think it's a guarantee but I think it's very possible
0: well it's a fascinating book it's called The Passion Economy The New Rules for Thriving in the 21st Century Adam thanks so much for taking the time today
1: Nick this was awesome thanks so much man
0: Thanks to my guest this week, Adam Davidson, the author of The Passion Economy. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the High with Nick Bilton. that's me, you can find these on applepodcastradio.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a really nice review while you're there, preferably one that has more than five stars, if that's humanly possible. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, and thanks, of course, to my sponsors this week, Skillshare and Lightstream. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I'll see you next week.